God has rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son he loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at this Son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. You received Christ Jesus, the master. Now live him. You're deeply rooted in him. All right, Trinity Church, how you doing today? Yeah, you sound like you're doing good. You're singing great. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job they do every week. We're going to come back today at the end of the service and just really kind of button everything up in a great way, so you'll, you'll really appreciate that. Well, these are my friends, John and Sherry Skubik, and they are giving great leadership to an upcoming event we mentioned already early in the service, but I wanted you to hear from them related to Christianity Explored, why are we doing it, and, and who should you be thinking and praying about? So, John, go ahead. Thanks, Todd. So, when Sherry and I were approached to become involved in Christianity Explored, we quickly realized that we needed to say yes. We're hearing voices, John. Maybe God's telling you to say yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, we've, been, we've had the privilege of hosting uh, seekers groups in our home for almost the last 20 years, and this is your opportunity to ask seekers to come and learn about who Jesus is, why he came, and what our response should be. And let me state that there is nothing, and I mean nothing more fulfilling and watching the Holy Spirit parts as they come, something's moving in the, in the sanctuary, as they come to understand the importance of having Jesus in their lives. Trinity's mission of rooted and reaching is what this ministry is all about. So we plan to meet for two hours on Sunday evenings from five to seven for seven Sundays starting October 7th. So that's a lot of sevens. Anyway, the guests won't be asked to do anything that's uncomfortable, to sing or pray or read aloud. And as Luke mentioned earlier, they get a free meal and childcare if they need it, so you can sell it as a date night. <laughs> so I'm sure as I started talking, people in your hearts, uh, people in your lives came to your heart about who you might ask. And what Sherry and I have learned is that when we ask people to come, the worst they can say is no. They may say, not now, which is okay, because that means they're still thinking about it. Or they may surprise you and say yes. And we've been truly amazed at the yeses we've received over these years. So you have two weeks to pray and ask people to come. You can come with them to the first session uh, and stay with them as long as it's necessary for them to be comfortable, or you can plan to come to all seven sessions. So pray that God gives you boldness to ask, because the worst they can say is no, and they may amaze you and say yes. Good job, John. <laughs> uh, I'd just like to invite you also. We have a kiosk out there today that says Christianity Explored. If you want to just talk to us more about how to invite a friend or anything, feel free to come up there or sign up. Um, we also have online registration. But we are so excited that you have the opportunity to bring friends, and we promise it will be fun and not scary. So. Bring them out and just we'll just trust God for what he's going to do. Thanks. 
All right, would you guys thank John and Sherry? Thank you guys. Appreciate it. It's been a really um, kind of intense weekend for us. We had a great retreat away. Our pastors, elders, wives, and spouses uh, up at Forest Home over the weekend. And I just wanted to say to you as a church family, we are incredibly blessed to have the kind of leaders that we have. And I'm so grateful. We just spent this, this time with them and talking about our mission of being a people rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. And I just want you to know, and I know we have so many different layers of leadership all throughout Trinity, but especially at that level of elder and pastor and their spouses, some really great people who really have a heart for God and for what he wants to do here in this valley. So what we're going to do today is we're continuing in a series called Rooted. And what we're doing is we're walking through the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible today, you can find your way there. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to now moving into that next uh, chapter of this short book. And what we've been learning is this. We've been seeing this idea that what Paul is putting out, Paul is sharing, he's giving information to a group of people he's never met before, but a group of people in a town called Colossae who came to put their faith in Jesus because of a friend of his, a guy named Epaphras, who had heard the gospel himself, went back to his hometown, had shared this great news with people. Now he's writing to that new group of believers, that new group of Jesus followers. And really the essence of the book boils down to two big ideas. He's talking about how is it that they should understand the gospel, meaning what's the context? And he just really keeps banging out these ideas that we've seen all through chapter one, is who is Jesus and who are they? We'll see that again today, just really with clarity. And you don't understand the value and the importance of the gospel until you know those two things. So it begins with that, but then he moves in the book, as we'll see later in chapters three and four, what do I do? How do I live according to this great news of what God has done for me? And that's, that sets the, way, the rest of the way of, of the book. I am so excited to get to the end of this message. I just want to dive right in. It's all good, but I think where we end today is of great value, so I want to just dive in. Here's our now what idea. What are, what are we talking about, and what are we supposed to do with this this week? Continue gratefully in Jesus because of all that he has accomplished, accomplished for you. Continue gratefully in Jesus because of all that he's accomplished for you. Let's dive in. Number one in your notes, continue as you began responding to Jesus as Lord. If I didn't say it already, you have notes in your Trinity this week. They look like this. That'll help you a little bit with our blanks. Just kind of follow along. You'll notice also if you're in a home group, these are your prompts for your questions this week. So have that ready uh, as we walk it out. So we begin actually with a passage that this time last year as we were kind of rolling out this mission of being a people rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. And by the way, we keep talking about that related to Trinity Church's mission and I don't ever want you to get the impression that we think we've unearthed something so unique from everyone on the planet. We believe that every church who's following Jesus ought to be a group of people who are rooted. They understand who they are in Christ. And as a result, they're engaged in reaching their worlds. It's great commandment, great commission stuff. This is just the way that we are framing it, the way that we are reminding ourselves readily of these ideas. So this passage, these first two verses in our series last year, we spent the whole, passage, the whole message just on these two. So I'm not going to preach two passages or two messages today, but I'm going to give you some highlights. This is where it begins, Colossians 2, verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. 
Here's a couple of highlights throughout this passage. Note that where it begins, Paul's saying, continue as you started. You started with this idea of saying, I recognize not only is Jesus someone who has rescued me, but I actually rightly so should call him Lord. Don't stop. How you begun is how you should continue. And we're going to see a couple things about some of the, verse, the, the verb forms that he uses. But this word master or Lord, I want to start with, that's literally what it means. It means master. We would never want to shy away from all the different titles in Scripture related to who God is, and specifically today, the second member of the Trinity of Jesus. We see all throughout Scripture, not only is he our Savior, but he's our Lord. And Lord carries with it the idea you would understand it to be. A Lord has subjects who live in submission to him. They follow his design. And rightly so. And, and remember what we have to keep coming back to, especially for those of us who maybe have had some real challenging situations and experiences under the name of religion, where sometimes it can be absolutely just so uh, much of a pound in people's lives versus anything that brings refreshment and joy, is that within that, we know that God's design is always for our best. God's design, living according to our Lord and Master, is always with the view that this is actually where the blessed life is, where the life that God is going to reward with the life I've always really wanted to live. So we see that, and Paul begins with that idea. He says, don't miss this idea. Also, he's going to give us in our passage, these first few verses, two imperative verbs. We've said before, we really want to pay attention in Scripture when imperative verbs are in the text because the verbs are meant to be a command. They're not a suggestion, and they really ought never be ignored. So his first command is continue. Continue in the way that you began, responding to Jesus as Lord and being in him. The first of these words of what does it look like to continue is rooted, and obviously we talk a lot about that at Trinity Church. It very literally means to cause to take root, but it's a metaphorical idea as well. To plant, to fix firmly, or to establish. So the metaphor is obviously an agricultural idea, and we think of anything that goes in the ground is that's not only where its structure and support comes from, or its roots, but also its nourishment, and also the way that it just gains vitality is through the root system. So here's what Paul's saying. The interesting thing is, is that you, I really want you to pay attention. Look in your notes. Pay attention to the verb form. The verb tense of this word in Colossians 2 is powerful. It's a perfect tense verb in the passive voice, which literally should be translated having been rooted. And often you'll note that in your notes, I don't give you a lot of verbiage, a lot of like verbal tenses, but this is so important. It begins with continue in in Jesus, continue as, as he, you're following him as Lord, rooted, or having been rooted. So if it is a perfect tense verb in a passive voice, that means that someone else is doing it to you. You don't try to become more rooted in God. That's why even our word, we don't use the word routine in Jesus, rooted. We're understanding what God has done for us. He is the one who has planted you into the sun. He is the one who has grafted you in and rooted you to Jesus, your Savior. And that is great news. That's important that we see that from the very beginning, that rooted is not something we try and, and sweat hard to accomplish. It's something that happens, a positional idea. 
the next two phrases, to be built up in him. Paul moves away from an agricultural term to more of a construction term. And the idea is that which, if there's a foundation, it's what you put on top of that, being built up. So think of it this way. If you had like a line of horizon, being, having been rooted in Christ is what's going on underground, underneath. And being built up in him is what's going on above the soil, what's going on that you can see in that direction. Paul's saying both of these are ideas of what it looks like to continue in Jesus and, and serving him as, you, as your Lord. And then he uses this next phrase, strengthened in the faith that, as you were taught. The word strengthened is, is literally the idea to walk where it's solid. So here's what Paul is saying. The way that you're going to be strengthened in this walk with Jesus is to walk on the reliability of who he is. Not in the reliability of other fancy ideas or other things that might come across your radar. No, where you're strengthened in your faith is walking where it's reliable in whom you put your trust. He's reminding them Epaphras brought this great news of Jesus. And like we saw this the last couple of weeks, don't deviate from it. Don't move away from the hope held out in the gospel. Continue on. And here's the great news. If, I have, if you have been rooted in Jesus, if you are being built up and being strengthened, the last phrase of this passage is really important, that we would be a people. What is the outcome of being someone who's continuing? We would be a people overflowing with thankfulness. The first three previous verb tenses are all passive, having been rooted, being strengthened, being built up, but this is an active word. That means this, is that no one's going to be thankful for you, okay? These other things all happen to you, but thankfulness ought to be springing out of your life. I had this great conversation with one of our attendees after the first service, and I loved what she was saying. She's just saying, I have never been more grateful in my life for what Jesus has done for me. And I said, you are the epitome of what we talked about today, overflowing with thankfulness. That is an active response to the things that God has done in you. And I want you to see this today. We preached this last year in our idea, and we actually captured our entire mission in these two verses from Colossians 6. And when you think about it, the first the overwhelming part of the verse has a lot to do with being rooted. It has a lot to do with the idea of continue as you began, having been rooted, being built up, being strengthened. But this last phrase, overflowing with thankfulness. When we preached this last year, we talked about how are the people in your relational world, because everything we talk about is through the lens of relationship. Every one of us has a relational world. Every one of us has a sphere of influence. How is it that people are going to genuinely, authentically see Jesus through you is when you're living an overflowing with thankfulness kind of life. That's where the reaching comes from. And so really our entire mission of being a people rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds, is found in these two great verses in Colossians 6 and 7. And as great as that is, I gotta move on. A lot more stuff to cover, okay? Number two in your notes, beware of falling prey to counterfeits. Paul's gonna follow this up with a warning. Beware of falling prey to counterfeits. Colossians 2.8, a, a well-known verse, this is what it says. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. 
Paul begins right out of the gates, and, and by the way, he's going to use the same kind of verbal tense. The first one was continue. It's an imperative verb. Now he's using another one, see to it that. Another way of saying see to it that is be very careful or beware. And, and he's going to lay this out. He's going to tell them to beware of following something that's different. That word, that, word, um, uh, that you be taken captive is, is another way of saying is to be carried off as prey by a predator. That's incredibly visual, like we get that. Even if you're not a hunter, you get that idea to be carried off as prey by a predator. So this is what he's warning against. Be careful that you don't be swept away, that you don't be enticed away from following after Jesus. Look at this, this is that verb we mentioned in your notes. See to it is an imperative verb, like the verbal form of continue that we read earlier, and it's to be understood as a command or a directive. And here's the the part that I think is dissonant for us. I talk to people that are followers of Jesus and I think that this area is challenging because I think we've somehow become convinced that we can't control what we listen to, what we think of, or what we follow. And, and it's weird, I know that sounds like, well, who doesn't think that? Well, think of it this way. I'll often talk to people who are struggling with their thought life and struggling with thoughts that come in and just begin to really take ownership of their soul. And we say, you know, when the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ, that's an imperative verb. There is an expectation that you would actually play a part in saying, God, those thoughts don't belong in my mind. They're not true of who I am. They don't have any place of me to dwell on them. The same is also true for this idea. Some would say, well, Todd, it's, it's hard to know who to believe. It's hard to know who to follow. We'll get to it in a minute. Paul's going to give us this genius idea of how to actually know what is true and what is not. But I want you to see from the beginning today, Paul is saying that we do have a responsibility, that we are to be careful, to beware, that we begin to follow after something that is less than Jesus. And Paul's telling this to a group of Colossian believers that, as we, we've been talking about throughout this series, he's been teasing out ideas. He hasn't just kind of hit them between the eyes. Here's the problem, but he's kind of hinting at it. And today, this is like the first really bold way of saying it. Be careful because you're being, there are people around you wanting to lead you astray. One of my wife's favorite movies in this last year has been the blockbuster drama, Peter Rabbit, okay? <laughs> And um, I remember we went and saw it for her birthday, and we loved it. We just laughed so hard. And, and within it, what, what, and, and here's a spoiler alert, okay, so be careful, um, like you've never heard the tale of Peter Rabbit. But uh, Peter has a cousin, Benjamin, and Benjamin keeps warning him, Peter, don't. Don't go in old Mr. McGregor's garden, because if you do and he catches you, he's going to turn you into rabbit pie. Okay, And they're all throughout the movie. He's warning him, and Peter keeps doing it. And as you think about that, that's what Benjamin's playing. He's playing the role of someone who's bringing to alert. You don't have to go do that. Now, Peter is putting his rabbit life on the line every time he enters into and sees that big, shiny red tomato. But for you, for the Colossian listeners to this, and for us today as we read this text, your soul's in jeopardy. Your soul's in jeopardy if you begin to say, hey, there is something that is equal to or even greater than Jesus that I am giving myself to. Let me explain. We walked through the rest of 
of this part. How would they actually do this? How would they be deceived and walk away from Jesus? Well, they would do it through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, Paul is not against philosophy. You're here today like, well, I was a philosophy major at university. He, he's not against so much the idea of the, of the discipline of philosophy, but philosophy in the first century world would have been a worldview. It would have been an approach to life. What is your approach to life, your philosophy? And what he's saying is be careful that there's bait that's out on the horizon that would lead you away to something that is empty and misleading. Pay attention, be alert to that. And what are the examples of those types of hollow and deceptive philosophies? Well, he says it, the kind that depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. And right now you're saying, thank you, Todd. I have no idea what that means, okay? Well, let's unpack it a little bit. The first phrase, the idea of depending on human tradition. Jesus had much to say to the Pharisees. I was interested this week, my daughter up at school was working on a project and, and in her Bible class, it was actually to give an, a background and an overview. Who were the, the Pharisees and why did Jesus have such strong and at times harsh words for them? Because you have to remember that in, in the Gospels, when Jesus is walking the planet, they were the most esteemed religious people of the Jewish order that, that walked the face of the earth. So why would Jesus be, why would he be, and uh, uh, would he uh, go against them and be argumentative about the ways that they would act? And, and the biggest idea that keeps coming up about the Pharisees, besides hypocrisy, and besides just an idea of we're going to hold on to all the power, was the fact that they had added to God's word. Now, God's law, the, what we call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, has like over 600 laws of how they were supposed to live. Imagine we're going to even add more to that as though that wasn't enough. And that's what the Pharisees had done. So in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is quoting the book of Isaiah, and then he's going to speak specifically to the Pharisees. In Isaiah, he's quoting, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And by the way, Isaiah was written 700 and some odd years before Jesus was on the planet. This is not a new problem of, of adding tradition to truth. Look at verse 8. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. As he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. So here would be an example from today. Any time in our lives or anyone that would say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, and when they would say, here is the truth of God's word, but this other teaching, this other teacher, this other idea, it's not in scripture explicit or it's not in scripture related to the clarity of black and whiteness of it, but I'm going to elevate it on par or even go beyond that. The Bible's great, but man, this is really where it's at. And, and when you hear that, you kind of go, Oh, okay, well, as I think about it, there are some groups of people maybe who've done that. They've taken the word of God and, and made some other writing or some other uh, concept or a worldview equal to that's not really scriptural or even more important in the Bible subservient to it. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the problem with the Pharisees is they were using their own traditions, their own, maybe in other word, preferences that were on par or even better than scripture. Now, I'm embarrassed to share this next part, but I, I want to give an example and be vulnerable because I think that it's, I'm not alone in having this attitude and perspective. But when I was 12 years old, I grew up in a very conservative church and very, very much, I think, theologically orthodox and the whole thing. But if you were to ask me, and I was thinking about today, yeah, I think about by the time I was 12, I had this formed idea 
that the easiest way to tell if someone was not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, was, here's the list, they, um, they had a tattoo, they swore, they drank alcohol, and they smoked. And it didn't have to be all those four, any of those four. That was the way. Now, I want you to watch this. I will say this. Not a single person ever sat me down and said, Todd, here's the grid. Look for people who do these things. They're not followers of Jesus. No one ever said that. But watch this. I form my opinions based on what people around me said. I formed my opinions based on what I heard in my home. I formed opinions based on the things that other people that I was in church with, what they said about people who did and had those things, and then came to the assumption, that's the list. I told you, I'm embarrassed to say that. I don't begin to believe that now. And I want you to hear this. When did my thinking begin to change? When I opened my Bible. Okay, because my point is, even though I was around people who were walking around with their Bibles, they had not read them. Because all four of those things that I mentioned, though, and in varying degrees, the Bible says something about them, never are they the litmus test. What's always the litmus test is by grace through faith. So we have to keep coming to that reality. And guess what? I had adopted a, quote, human tradition of how I saw the world, how I understood what, well, the Bible's great, but I think this is also important. I've shared my list my hope would be today you'd evaluate yours. God, what if anything have I put on par with my preference or my understanding of the world that somehow identifies something that is not true in scripture or I've even made more important than the Bible? And it's not, I'm not unique in that I'm like the first person who ever did something like that. That is really rampant. And, the, and what Paul is warning against, don't walk down that trail. Here's the other phrase that's there. It's really a long one. Elemental spiritual forces of this world. I can't even say the whole phrase barely without in one breath. So it's this long set of words. What on earth does that mean? There's a couple other places in scripture that have the exact same phrase that I thought we could look at that will help shape our opinion a little bit, our understanding of the meaning of this phrase. One is what we'll look at more in-depthly next week in chapter 2 of Colossians, and the other one's found in Galatians 4. Here's what Colossians 2.20 says. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, there's the phrase, why is though, well, here's the key phrase, why is though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? So see that correlation. Elemental spiritual forces of the world as though when you belong to the world. Now look at Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, Paul's using the metaphor of an heir, H-E-I-R, who is underage and how actually they're very similar in, in, in terms of... of um, of ability and authority to actually what a slave would be under someone else's leadership. And he's using that image to talk about who we were before Christ and now what has, since Jesus has done this for us. Galatians 4.1, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, like that's all going to be his, but he doesn't get to live like it. 
the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also we were under age. We were apart from Jesus. When we were that, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So here's basically what that phrase, if you boil it down, looking at these other two cross references, here's what it is. It's the way of thinking that all of us had the elemental things, the way we all as human beings thought before we encountered Christ. Just the basic way that we thought life worked before we were introduced to the truth of who Jesus is and what he done for us. That, that's how, and, and here's Paul's concern. You used to think this way, and that made sense B.C., before Christ. But now on this side of putting your faith in Jesus, there's no, there's never, it's not appropriate. It doesn't fit you anymore. That's not a way to begin to adopt a worldview or how to live. Here's an example that comes up all the time. I'm going to warn you in advance. This is found nowhere in your Bible, but we talk about it. You've maybe even quoted it, thinking it was Scripture. God helps those who help themselves. Nowhere in your Bible. And watch this. Watch why, we, why I'd say that's the elemental way of thinking. Most of us would say, well, yeah, someone bigger than you, someone maybe a little bit stronger than you will help you if you've at least showed initiative. Can I help you with this today? God helped you when you were helpless. You did nothing to earn some way for him to elevate you up or, or add to what you were already doing. That's called religion. We don't believe in that. We say, Jesus, it's all about what you did for us at the cross. So that Paul's saying, he's warning them, don't walk down that road. Here's the simple way of putting it in your notes. According to Colossians 2a, the counterfeit is any approach to life that does not depend on Jesus. That's just the most basic way to say it. Any approach to life that does not depend upon Jesus. Paul's warning these Colossian Christians to not allow these influences into their way of thinking and their following because there is nothing that should be in competition. There should be nothing on equal, even par with who Jesus is or what we have in his word. I love the way he said it. Douglas Moo, a commentator, put it this way. One cannot add to Christ without, in effect, subtracting from his exclusive place in creation and salvation history. That just makes so much sense to me. That's what happens when we begin to allow hollow and deceptive philosophies, when we allow this idea of human tradition or spiritual elemental forces of the world. That's when we start thinking that way, we're unseating Christ from the primary and the supreme place he belongs. Finally today, number three, Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our champion based on who he is and what he did at the cross. Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Watch the change in tone. He forgave us, Paul including himself. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All right, there's a lot to go through here. Let me just begin to dive in. 
He absolutely, when Paul begins this in Colossians 2, he's almost quoting, literally quoting himself from what we read in Colossians 1.19, that Jesus is the fullness of the deity. Jesus is fully God. He's not like God. He's not a little bit God. He's completely on par with the Father. And what we see this is that, and we're talking in this part of Colossians 2 about a lot of positional ideas. Remember the phrase we even introduced two years ago in Ephesians and we see coming up so much in the book of Colossians of being in Christ and this idea that once I have put my faith, I have put my weight, I have put all the eggs in my basket into Jesus's basket. When I have done that, I've staked my eternity on what he's done the Bible says that now I am found in Christ. So this idea that when God sees me, he sees his son. Jesus is in the way, as it were, of the problems and the issues that I have faced because they're erased, they're made clean because of what Jesus has done. Not because of my religion, not because of my rule keeping, not even because of how I feel right now on a Sunday morning, but because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. That and that alone changes my standing. So this idea, what Paul is saying is, is that because the fullness of the deity dwells in Jesus, and by the way, this isn't a phrase to somehow talk about us being godlike, that we're somehow on par with God, not at all, but we are found, like the song today, we're found in him. Paul goes on to almost seemingly randomly mention that Jesus is the head of every authority, every power. It almost comes kind of out of the blue, these phrases are a little bit nebulous, like which powers and which authorities. But when those two words are joined in scripture, they often refer to the spiritual forces that are opposed to God. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion. And watch these two words, authority and power. We're going to see those two words come up again before we're done today, but it's important that Paul identifies Jesus is the head. Jesus is over these. Paul changes gear then. He talks about two different ideas, that of circumcision and that of baptism. And let me say what we're doing. Remember, we're talking all about positional ideas. So neither of these in this moment are to be thought of as literal, but they're metaphors. Think of it this way. In the older covenant, in the Old Testament, God's demonstrable way of showing to the people of the world who were his people was through the lens of circumcision. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. Then on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, when, after Jesus accomplishes what he does, circumcision is never found to have any value, but now instead it's baptism. Baptism is now what you might say if this was the old covenant equivalent of, the, of publicly demonstrating some sort of uh, being included in the people of God. Now, baptism is the public demonstration. That's what was so rich when we went up to the lake a couple weeks ago and we saw 20 plus people share, I want everyone to know Jesus is who I follow. Powerful for them, but man, powerful for us as we're encouraged by them saying, I don't, that's not a secret, I want everyone to know. So here's what Paul's doing. He's taking these two ideas of the way that the people of God have been identified publicly, the way they have been made known. It's always a difference between what I do publicly and what my heart is. There can be a dissonance, but generally speaking, this is the visible way the people of God have been identified. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, I want you to move from the, the, the literal idea of circumcision and baptism and see what was going on when you're in Christ 
Those things have actually, Jesus has done something. He's accomplished the purpose of those because you're in him. And look at the phrases that he uses. He uses this idea of, um, the first off he says, your whole self ruled by the flesh. So what he's saying is this, this essence of your nature and your behavior, we've talked about that all through this series. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, both of what my nature is born into this world and how I behave, how I live it out. Paul's saying that whole self, that whole part of you that was ruled by the flesh has been put off, has been taken away. Now, let's ask a couple questions. We're like, so what you're saying is Colossians 2 says that once you come to Christ, you don't sin anymore? That would be disproved in this room and on this stage. Right, we're not saying that, but here, remember we're talking about positional. Positional, how I stand before God. And here's the key thing. The passage is not saying we'll no longer struggle with sin. We'll see in Colossians 3 more on that topic. But what I want you to see today is this, is that what is true, where sin used to have absolute power over us, it no longer does. That's what's different. The phrase is that it's put off. And that, that idea, we've seen the word before. It's the idea of putting off clothing. Like if you were to go home today and you were to change your clothes. But watch this. It's not like putting off clothing and hanging them back up in your closet. It's putting off clothing and having nothing to do with them the rest of your life. That idea of putting off the authority, putting off the weight, putting off the control of the flesh. It's something I've taken off and I have nothing to do with anymore in terms of its dominion over my life. Romans 6, we're going to look at a passage from there in a minute, but Romans 6 talks so much about we are no longer slaves to sin. That's a powerful idea if you stop and think about that. What has changed pre-Jesus and now following Jesus? Pre-Jesus, slave, uh, sin, I'm sorry, dominated my life. It permeated my decisions, my attitudes, my thoughts. Now, this side of being in Jesus, there is still this remnant of sin that wants to have its way with me, but it doesn't control me anymore. It's not the same. And that's what Paul's talking about, both positionally and then lived out practically. And he says, when did all this happen? When did this putting off of the flesh happen? When you were buried with him in baptism. Now, you're, that's why we know this isn't literal. I don't remember ever being buried with Jesus in baptism, but it's saying that when Jesus, when we came into Christ, we were baptized or, or um, that we were uh, put into him, that then this reality began to happen, that these things have been put off, and now that we're in Christ, we have somehow participated in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. Romans 5 talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. And here's the thing, we've said this before, you're like, Todd, I'm, some of us might struggle with, I'm not sure I'm really a sinner like you're talking about. Romans 5 says, though you weren't there when ultimately our predecessor first decided to violate God's will and do his own thing, the Bible says in Romans 5, all of humanity was somehow in Adam. And therefore, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Even though you're like, Todd, it's not my fault. I'm going to agree with you. It wasn't your fault initially. How have you lived since then? Remember we said both your nature and your behavior demonstrate a sin problem. So in the same way, the Bible says in Romans 5 that we were in Adam. Watch this. Now because of what Jesus has done in our faith in him, we're in Christ. We're in the second Adam. So we somehow participate with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Here's, I keep saying, let's look at Romans 6. Let's finally look at Romans 6. Romans 6 verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. It's the same word. Might be clothes I take off and never put on again. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Paul then reminds them in the middle of our passage we just read. He reminds them again. He goes back to reminding them of who they were. Remember, you were enemies of God. You lived opposed to him. You were dead with no hope. There was nothing you could do to revive yourself. But then Paul says, praise God he wakes the dead. Praise God that he makes you alive with Christ. And look at how he did it. Look in your notes. He forgave us all of our sins by canceling the debt. By canceling the debt. And I want you to see what this Greek word is. What does that mean Like very specifically how to cancel? Having blotted out the handwriting in the decree that was against us. Now, I know that sounds really wordy, but think about that for a minute. Having blotted out the handwriting in the decree that was against us. When you, when you read that part of the definition, canceling the debt, doesn't that actually look like a canceled IOU? That, that's what that is. I, I owe God something, but he has taken the handwriting and blotted it out so it's no longer legible that, that stood opposed to me, stood against me. So a couple of things. What's interesting, when it says he canceled the debt, think of this. Think of if you have an IOU and you owe someone something, and, and to make sure everyone was mindful of this, which, by the way, your credit card company does every month, um, they remind you of what you owe them. So, so when you do that, when you hand this, you have this piece of paper, one way they could cancel the debt is by ripping it up. But we found all too many times, you find the pieces of the paper in the trash, it's not really that hard to reassemble. So you can find evidence of what was there and that it was, but this kind of language, having blotted out, that, that means there's nothing now to look at. That's a powerful term. It's like this. Yesterday I made a wordle. Some of you have done these before. And at the top of my wordle, I used the phrase that was right here from Colossians 2, the written code uh, which stood opposed to us and condemned us. Those words are all within this, but then I added some other words that are about that idea, words like indict, words like being responsible, and then ways that fleshes itself out, disobedience, selfishness, arrogance, gossip, etc. And these are all words that relate to our IOU. So you have to understand, if God is creator, it would make sense that his created beings would live in a way that would be obedient towards him. If you created something, you would absolutely expect that. And every single time you and I have demonstrated, no God, I'll do it my way, we keep accruing to this list. We keep adding to the IOU, as it were. But here's the power of what I want you to see today, the power in what we've just read. It doesn't just say that God took this written code that was against us, that, that was opposed to us and that condemned us. It doesn't say that he just took it in that sense in the way it was and nailed it to the cross. Now, by the way, it would have been really cool if I would have come up with a hammer and nails. This isn't super sturdy like that, but even, um, even more important, I don't always hit the nail. So <laughs> I thought blood on the stage would not go well. But here's what I want you to see. Based on the word that we just looked at, it wasn't as though God took this IOU, took the problem, took the decree that said there's a problem in the relationship with God. You owe God. You don't have enough to pay and put it on the cross. This is what we just read. He took this and he turned it around. Better yet, if I had a way of using magic ink, he blotted it out. But it looks like this now. 
This is what your IOU looks like on the cross because of what Jesus has done. Blotted it out. Positionally before God, there is nothing to look at that says you still are at odds. This is the power of what it means for God to say, I forgive you. This is the power of what it means for God to say, I have taken it away as far as the east is to the west. You remember more about your sin than I do, says God, when you have lived in his forgiveness. And I want to finish with this powerful, powerful phrase. The last words that we read, if you think back to what was going on on Good Friday, if, if you would have been a human spectator, if you would have been there watching that day, here's what you would have seen. By the time that Jesus would have been paraded out of the, the, um, the courtyard of Pilate, by the time you would have seen him, he would have already been beat senselessly. He was already whipped, one whipping minus what death would bring, 39 lashes. So by the time you see him, he's been stripped bare. He has a crown of inch-long thorns shoved into his skull. He is full of dirt. He is full of blood. He's being paraded down the street, holding the very thing, holding the instrument of his own death. And as he walks through the street, as you are watching that, what you're seeing is a man disrobed. You are seeing a man who's being made a public spectacle. That was part of the deal. You're not just going to die with dignity. You're going to die and everyone's going to stare. And finally, you're going to die tragically and you're going to lose. This is the essence of what defeat looks like. From the human perspective, everything you would have seen would have, would have smacked of that truth. But I want you to see the way Paul finishes the passage that we read. Look at what it, Paul says. He says, having disarmed, talking about Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities. We read that word earlier. The spiritual forces opposed to God. Having disarmed or disrobed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Here's what I want you to hear today as we close. From a visual perspective, Jesus looked disrobed. Jesus looked as though he was publicly humiliated. Jesus looked defeated. But through a cosmic lens that you and I could never see, but God was watching, it was the spiritual powers who were disrobed. It was those who stood opposed to God who instead were humiliated. It was those who ultimately were defeated and Jesus triumphed. What looked so much like it was not what God wanted and what would not bring victory, we absolutely did. In your notes, everything was flipped upside down. God took what appeared to be a humiliating death and flipped it upside down to transform it into a point of triumph. Yay, God. Yay, God. God. Our takeaway this week, continue gratefully in Jesus because of all that he's accomplished for you. Let me pray. Father, we come before you as a people, a people, like we said at the beginning of this passage, overflowing with thankfulness. God, let that be the rightful expected outcome when we understand all that you've done for us. You have blotted out the transgressions. You have canceled the code that was opposed to us and condemned us. You blotted out the handwriting. There's nothing left to look at. God, out of deep, soulish gratitude, would we walk in that truth today? 
If you're here today and you have never yet responded to this great invitation of Jesus, the people in this room, let me tell you, the people in this room who we would say are followers of Jesus, who put their faith in him, they're not special in the sense that God only made this appeal to them. They're not special in the sense that they're so smart and they realize, oh, this is so important, I should do this. They were people that God captured and they responded. Why would that not be true of you today? Why would you not say, Jesus, A, I admit that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. B, I believe, I believe that this Jesus we talked about, what he, who he was and what he did at the cross, he accomplished. It was mission accomplished for me. There is no other option, no other savior available. And C, so I choose. I choose today to say, Jesus, I'm gonna put my weight, I'm gonna put my trust, I'm gonna put all the eggs that I have in your basket, believing that you have taken away the code that stood opposed to me, condemned me, and I wanna live a life following you. You can make that decision right here, right now, and my prayer is that you would. Father, we love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking our sins and nailing them to the cross. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.